0: We good? All right. You know that last week, we almost couldn't keep you quiet on the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit debate, which is some of you are still like, I still don't understand it, right? So last week, we covered Jesus being associated uh, with Satan. We covered blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We also covered a tree and its fruit. I'll come back just to touch on that last point one last time. Tonight, we're finishing up chapter 12, and then we're going to take a break, okay? We've been in Matthew now again for a number of weeks, so so far collectively from volume one that we did, and now volume two, we'll have been in Matthew for 23 weeks, so 23 different segments on Matthew, and we've successfully gone from chapter three to 12, you know? So most of you know that it probably ends somewhere in chapter 28, so at this pace, we'd have another like 40 weeks to go, so... Like we're gonna do, we've done before, we're gonna take a break for a while. So here's a side announcement for you. On that back table while you're on the way to you dropping money into the box for World Vision, you can also pick up that little pink form if you didn't do it last week. It's a survey of some of the topics. So we got quite a few surveys back from you guys. As with all things in Exodus, there is no consensus on anything, right? <laughs> so. You guys really, really, really wanted to do most all of them. So it was hard to get like, oh, and there's the clear winner. So just in case you can't read from over there, spiritual disciplines, scripture and the integrity of scripture and trustworthiness, justice was pretty high, uh, Something minister- oh, women in ministry, evangelism was, the, it was pretty high along with justice, political engagement, end times. Surprisingly, this group, end times, like a lot of people wanted to do that. We'll come in every week dressed as a different beast, and then you tell me what it means. You know, that'd be like totally cool. That would be Exodus' way of doing end times. Like, who am I now? Oh, like, oh, Europe, Muslims, garbage. Okay, the Russians. We
1: can edit
0: that. New Testament epistle, Old Testament book, and the purpose of the church down there. Like, gotten some some votes. I think what we're gonna do. Starting next week is doing a three- or four-week series just on what does it mean to be just and justice. Because it's one that can fit nicely before the end of the year. The other ones might take a little bit longer. (sighs) And the good thing about that is Morgan just did an intro to it this last Wednesday. For some of you who are at our house on Wednesday, we were talking about what does it mean to be just and what does justice mean. We kind of started to tease out some ideas from people. So we're going to kind of go through a little bit longer series on it. All right. So this is where we were last week. Last week I ended with this kind of challenge to you. As Jesus was ending his discussion after we debated the meaning of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, we got to this point. Jesus was talking about the tree and its fruit, good fruit, coming from good tree. Bad fruit, bad trees. And he says this, For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. By your words you will be condemned. My challenge to you at the end of last week was to realize what Jesus was really saying about how the words that come out of our mouth do reflect what's inside of us. And that I was convicted last week even as I spoke these words that sometimes in our own hearts there is stuff inside that comes out in our words, and that I asked you this week to watch the things that came out of your mouth, to watch the things that you spoke, and to ask, is that reflective of the condition that's in my heart? There's so many places in Scripture where we're asked this paradoxical question, like how can good things and bad things coexist together? How do they spend time side by side? And yet, in many of our lives, that seems to be possible, and we're exhorted not to let that be possible. So just, I want to remind us of that challenge because I threw it out at the end of last week and I did spend some time this week trying to like monitor like the things that came out of my mouth. And I'm so often tempted to say things that come out that are like funny or witty that maybe maybe sometimes they reflect that maybe I'm not so transformed as I should be on the inside. I'm not letting Christ do as much work in me inside to transform that. Let's finish off chapter 12. So we start off with this word, then, then, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Why then? What was going on just before that that they would say, then, they asked for this? Well, if you remember, he had just finished healing somebody who was under demonic influence. When he healed that person or when he performed the exorcism and that person, when the demon left... That's when the Pharisees said, Oh, I know how you're able to do this. The power in you comes from Satan. And they have this debate back and forth where Jesus is saying, How is it possible that Satan would be casting out demons? I mean, why would he be warring against himself? We've just had this dialogue. That's when he throws out the warning against blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. That's when he turns to them and says, The words that come out of your mouth reflect the true nature of your heart and what's inside of you. Then, the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Is this weird that they would ask this at this point? And I'm going to kind of answer before I even throw it out to you because I'll ask it this way. Have you ever in your life wanted to see a miraculous sign to know that this was all true? Have there been a time in your life when you thought, you know what, that wouldn't be a bad thing right now. I've got maybe some doubts. I'm not sure about this whole thing. There's some goofy things that I don't quite understand. There's some things that I wish weren't the way they were. You know what would be great is to see a sign that would just absolutely seal the deal right now. Anybody ever been there? Yeah? Most people? Maybe in another context you've seen it this way. You've been talking to somebody. You've been trying to explain to them why you believe these words. Why you believe Jesus is who he says he is. And the thought has crossed your mind like, they're not getting it. They're not going to believe me. Like Maybe if I could like, levitate them or something, that would make them believe or something. Maybe if I could sh- have a sign shown to them, now that would shake them out of their disbelief. And that's what you have right here. You have the Pharisees standing there in more than disbelief. I mean, they're not just not believing. Uh, they're actually saying, it's satanic what you're doing. So he argues with them and says, that's not logical. And he has this other dialogue with them. So they say, okay, then show us a sign. Here's his answer. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Stop there for a minute. I don't think that's the answer they were looking for. What about us when we're asking for a sign? Like, a lot of you raised your hand. I wish that I could see a sign. You're a wicked and adulterous generation, all you people who raised your hand. That's the answer. Why? Why? Isn't it honest to want to seek a sign? Somebody who wants a sign, why? Why do we want it? What's the purpose? Isn't it to be secure? I mean, are we trying to be wicked and adulterous by saying, Jesus, show me who you are without a doubt. Show me some sort of sign. It would help me. Don't we have biblical examples of that, by the way? Isn't that what Gideon did at one point with the fleece? God's like, hey, I want you to raise up an army. He's like, okay, let's, let's slow down a little bit here. <laughs> How about if I do this really weird thing, and then you do this really weird thing, and you show me that it's really you, and then I'll go be your general. So he does it. Then he gets the answer. And he goes, okay, okay, let's do it. Let's, let, you know, it's good. It's a good start. Let's do it again. Let's try one more time just to absolutely be sure that it's really God. God entertained that, He made it happen. Why are we or are they a wicked and adulterous generation? Because they want to see a sign. Yeah.
1: They had already seen and do so many things. So it wasn't really like, help us believe. We want to believe. I just kind of think it was more either like a mockery or a test or just a way to kind of hang him up on something else
0: what have they seen so far
1: they've seen him heal a demon possessed person they accused it of being satan instead of of god what else have they seen him do um heal didn't he heal someone like on the sabbath or something and they asked him like, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath, whatever, and he asked for compassion or whatever instead of sacrifice, or mercy instead of sacrifice, or so they've already seen him do things, miraculous things. Okay, cool.
0: I, I just have a question, because i do
1: we know that the wicked and adulterous generation, like his accusation there, is because they're asking the question, or just because of other things, because of, they are a wicked and adulterous generation,
0: and he's surprised they're asking, or commenting that they're asking for a sign. Well he is clearly saying they're wicked and adulterous and he's saying that a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. He's saying that's a byproduct of being a wicked and adulterous generation is you'll be looking for signs. I don't know if just looking for signs means that you become wicked and adulterous. That's a good clarification. Brittany? Does that
1: have something to do with him? Why are they asking him for this after we just like kind of condemn them? Like, do they expect him to not do a sign? In which case, to the audience is listening, that kind of proves so, that, well, maybe he is bad. Or if he does perform the sign, then what are they supposed to say? Oh, we're wrong, you're not doing it by Satan? Like, I don't really understand why they're not.
0: That's actually a good clarification. They seem to be unconvinced by whatever they just disputed. In their mind, they're not convinced that it's not from Satan, even though he's debated the point with them. So that's why it kind of transitions to say, okay, then show us a miraculous sign. This type of sign is a specific thing, by the way. It's found also in the Old Testament, kind of like, show us your credentials. Like, show us an undeniable sign, something that there is no way it could be anything but from God and we will believe you. So it does, it is connected to what he's just done, but they're kind of saying, all right, fine, we disagree about that. Let's get on with it. You show us something that's undeniable. And then we have something to talk about. Ryan? I think, like, at this point, Jesus is pretty pissed off because, you know, he just cast out demons, and then it's like he's sitting here and he's like, you know, the Lord is among you guys, and you guys who study the word can't even figure it out, and it's right in front of your face. So I think, like, the example of Jonah, it kind of Jonah got eaten by a fish, and it was kind of a bad thing. So I think, like, there's kind of an underlying hint to where he might be like, the only sign that you guys are going to have is, like, signs from God that are bad, than a good sign.
1: I think it could be kind of something funny.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that Jesus knows that no matter what he does, you're not going to believe. And he's basically saying, you want the ultimate sign? You're going to get the ultimate sign. I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life in three days. Because I think mm-hmm. that's, like, what he's alluding to. But he knows that even when he dies and comes back, that they're still not going to believe. Like, clearly, some of the Jewish people still went after Christians, even after Christ rose from the dead. So I think he's like, I'm not going to give you a sign. You don't believe. That's why you're adulterous. You're going to see it. You're going to betray what you see anyways.
0: Let's focus on the word adulterous. I mean, is he calling them? Is he saying, like, you guys are all sleeping around? It's an Old Testament word used over and over in the imagery that God has with his people. You are cheating on the relationship with God. We have this imagery throughout Scripture, so he's reminding of that adulterous relationship, that metaphor that's used over and over. There isn't a sign that's ever going to be good enough for these people, forgetting for the moment that he just performed some miracles. Now, this area that he's moving around in, that he's doing in his ministry is, is not a very big area. So all of the miracles that are going on, whether it's like, He's already told, I mean, forget just what the disciples are doing. But his own miracles, blind people, lepers, all those things, they're aware of all of this. The word is moving around. It's not like they haven't heard. And, of course, he is alluding to this ultimate thing that they're not going to believe in. Remember, we've reminded a number of times that Jesus, in one of his parables, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, he comments on his own parable. He makes an editorial comment in the middle of the parable where the rich man is saying, let me go back and warn my brothers if they'd known that the fate is going to be like this and they would end up in hell. I could go back and warn them. Let me go back. They're still alive. And Jesus editorializing says, even if a man would rise from the dead, they won't believe you. Jesus knows all too well that some signs, no matter what, there are just some people who will not believe. Yeah. Just to kind of uh, parallel this, is that Jesus also called his own disciples, looking at perverse though. When they tried to cast out the demon and he couldn't, and he says, Much prayer and much fasting is considered, you know, it takes to cast out this demon. And then he says, You wicked in the first generation, how long will I stay with you? Yeah, he has a lot to say about the generation. I mean, I want to show you another quick quote in chapter 11. It's at the tail end of the John the Baptist story that we did a while back. Look at this. Again, he's constantly looking at this generation. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and we did, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Again, another one of Jesus' riddles. Like, what does that mean, you know? Jesus is making an allusion actually to himself and to John the Baptist, comparing himself to children and the way they would play in the first century as either playing wedding or playing funeral marches. This is one of the ways they used to play. And he's saying that the people like myself and John the Baptist have called out, set up the game, and you guys are like children, and no matter what game we set up for you to play, you don't want to play. You don't want to be part of it. He makes another statement down here comparing himself and John, and how no matter what we do, it doesn't seem to be good enough for you people. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they said he has a demon. Remember, John lived a very acidic life. He was living trying to call people to repentance and to purity, and he lived that way, and they said, that guy's crazy. The son of man, referring to himself, came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Jesus throws in this kind of commentary that no matter what we do, you don't want to play. No matter how we set it up, you're going to find a way to try to discredit what we're doing. And he's speaking again directly to those people who are not believing. Not just the Pharisees, but to all people who are looking for a reason not to believe. It doesn't matter what I do. It's not going to work. So I don't know that there's a wickedness in wanting the kinds of signs. But some people have said, you know, we have to be careful. We have a gift. Sometimes we don't think of it as a gift. But God has given to us a gift, the ability to have faith. The ability to believe in things that are not quite seen in front of our eyes, our ears. That's a gift. Signs kind of are the end of faith sometimes. Because when things are absolutely proved, we no longer have faith. Some of you would say, I'll trade in faith any day from absolute certainty. Give it to me. But I think God knows better. I think God knows that faith actually, there's something about faith that really works uniquely with our souls. And most days, I think I would want to trade it in. But he knows better. So it's not just people who are wicked who should know better that he's going after. I think he also knows that it's probably better for us not to lose the ability to have faith because everything is constantly proven. Let's go back to this for a second. What's this sign of Jonah? You said it was what, swimming with the fishes? Is that kind of like a mob thing? Or what was, the, what was the Jonah thing? It's
1: alluding to Christ being crucified, dying, and coming back to life in three
0: days. Okay. So Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. And then he kind of had a rebirth, sort of, right? Because he was given a second chance. And then he went and did what? He preached to the people in Nineveh, right? Anything bother you about this uh, Jonah example? Anything catch you as slightly weird? How about the three days and three nights? Does that seem a little strange to you? Because a lot of people get tripped up on this, and I'll bring it up right here. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The heart of the earth being like Hades, like the place of death. Three days and three nights. How long was Jesus actually in the tomb?
1: Three days two days.
0: Three days and two nights, right? I mean, actually, he died on Friday, and on Sunday, he was already checking out of the hotel. Like, you know, they had a 12 o'clock checkout at that hotel, right? He was already checking out, packing up, and gone. Maybe it's
1: not just as three days, three nights, but just as he went and came back, I will go and come back.
0: Yeah, but he says the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So just so we address it, because it's been brought up a number of places I've seen that people get, I mean, you, might, you guys are like, who even pays attention to the details of the words, you know, but, <laughs> but actually there are people who write and say, look, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about because that means that the Easter story is a makeup story or this isn't really him. Three days and three nights is an idiomatic expression. We've had the same encounter when we said that Jesus went for 40 days and 40 nights without eating. We were like, how is that even possible? There are some idiomatic expressions, three days and three nights is an idiomatic way of saying three days. Even though we in our literal sense go, but, but why would you say nights unless, why would you just say three days? It was just the way the language was spoken. So I looked this up with a number of people that are like three days, three nights is the equivalent of saying for three days, okay? That would count Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Not a contradiction, but I want to point out because I've seen a number of places where they point out contradictions in the Bible. They make a huge deal out of this one. And actually, it's probably not a huge deal at all if you just understood the language. Also, so you were saying, like, through translation, like, they kind of added, it in No, it's actually a Hebrew expression, but it's been translated to Greek. Three days and three nights of the way they spoke. That would just be the equivalent of saying three days. I don't know why a society would add those extra things, but if you notice in the Bible, there's always days, nights right next to each other. And a lot of the numbered days, nights. And by the way, when he spoke this, do you think they understood this? I'm not sure they got this yet. You know, no one's counting and saying, okay, he just said it. That's it. He's going down for three days. <laughs> I, I, don't, I still don't think this is dawning on them yet. It's not at that level in that point, okay? All right, let's look at the rest of this right here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The Jews were not particularly happy if you go back to look at the story of Jonah. He just used Jonah as an example to foreshadow the resurrection and the, and the, and the whole death and resurrection. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh to preach. Why not? Because he, they hated the Ninevites. Not only that, he knew the prophecy of Israel. He knew that eventually the Ninevites were going to be used as an instrument to help wipe out Israel later. So he, he was arguing with the Lord, like, why would you even want me to go to these people and help them repent? The reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he knew they might repent. He wanted them to, to be cursed. He didn't want them to turn around. He wanted them to be wiped out. When God made him go, he knew, like, oh, if I go, you know they're going to repent. And then later on, they're going to come back and wipe us out. So in the history of Israel, Nineveh is not a popular place. But Jesus is saying, Nineveh is going to be there on the day of judgment and condemn you. You guys are so bad. Nineveh who repented is going to be there. They're going to get it. And there's somebody even greater than Jonah, and you still don't get it. Same thing with the queen of the south, who's the queen of Sheba, who traveled so far To hear the wisdom of Solomon, she changed her ways. And yet, now there's somebody even wiser than Solomon. So if the the Queen of Sheba, somebody from a different place, from Arabia, could show up and change her ways, how is it that you people don't get it? How is it that you don't understand when there's somebody even greater than Solomon here, greater than Jonah, and you still don't get it? Yeah, I think he's pretty upset with him. You want a sign? It's not going to matter. You don't get it. Nothing would satisfy you. This generation is wicked and adulterous. It's just the way it is. Now, it's tempting to think he's just talking to the Pharisees, by the way. Remember this whole dialogue he's been having through all of chapter 12. There's people standing there listening. He's talking to everybody who's kind of in earshot saying, you've got to choose. You've got to decide what side you're going to be on. Here's why we know that. You know, Jesus is going to start in chapter 13 with some parables. And I always thought the parables were hard to understand. I think the parables are easy compared to things like this. How about this one? When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Imagine arriving, just opening up the book of Matthew. You guys know that thing where you go, God, speak to me, please. And you just go, you just open a page, take your finger, and go, boink. Imagine it landing here. <laughs> so you read this and you conclude that the Lord is telling you to go to Disneyland because that's where the haunted mansion is. And that's the only place where you could think of where a spirit goes out and seven come in and they live in the house and that's the only thing that you could even imagine he could be talking about in this verse. What does this mean? What's he talking about? Anyone want to jump in? Yeah. Well, I'm kind of cheating because my Bible teacher talked
1: about this.
0: Oh, good, yeah. You're cheating because you actually know what's in the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's not allowed here.
1: <laughs>
0: that is not allowed Uh, He was talking about, like,
1: um, change in action, like, after, after a miracle happens, after the demon is sent out. If the person doesn't change in their action, in their lifestyle, then it'll just get worse and all of these things will come back,
0: like, sevenfold. Yeah. Anyone else? Sounds good enough, right? Better than what it, what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, could we be talking about, like, the Jewish people in general? Like, they've had lots of times where, like, they turned away from God and then came back, like, quote, unquote, casting out the evil spirit. And then they tried to clean up their house, but they didn't do it fully. And then later, God's judgment would be, like, visited upon them even worse. Like, 70 years after that, the temple gets destroyed and the diaspora starts. So that's, like, the most horrible time to be a Jew then. So maybe he's, like, also, like, foreseeing what's going to happen in the next I think all of those things are right, except we have to be careful not to say that the demons are God's judgment because he is actually setting them up. So I think you've got it, just not with the demons. What Jesus is saying is you've got to make a decision. You cannot leave the house empty. Remember, this whole thing started because he cast out a demon, right? So he's actually kind of picking up where he left off with that, saying when an evil spirit is cast out, They're out, and they they wander into this arid place. Basically, he's making an allusion to the desert, like spirits need to live in bodies. That's what he's kind of saying. He's making It's kind of a metaphor, but it's kind of maybe spiritually true. We don't know. But he's saying that basically, once a spirit is cast out, that's not the end of the story. If you leave the house empty, then other spirits will come in using that spirit house metaphor. And the number seven is in there because that's kind of a biblical number for completeness. What he's saying is once that one spirit is out of there, if you leave the house empty and you don't change, you don't put something else in there, then actually more spirits are going to move in. A complete number that will completely take it over is what he's saying. So what are you supposed to put in the house?
1: Yeah. Couldn't it kind of be a repentance thing? Like if you don't first clear it out and then change, the positive things for the ones, then you're just going more trouble for
0: yourself. That's exactly right. What's the positive thing that you've got to put in there? What's the, what's the answer in every church that's the right answer? Jesus! Oh, they're, they're, he's so good at that. <laughs> that's exactly what he's saying to the crowds. These are all connected. You heal a person by casting out a demon. They claim it's Satan. He warns them about doing that kind of thing. He's talking about what's inside of you how the words reflect what's in there. They say, show us a sign. He says, you're a wicked generation, nothing's ever going to convince you. Going back to what's just happened. He said, once this thing comes out, if you leave the place empty, it's going to come back in again. Not literally just the demon, although that's probably what he's saying in context, but that all the bad stuff, the healing, the things, you have to make the choice. You have to bring in the good thing. It's not enough for me just to heal. It's not enough for me just to cast out demons. It's not enough for you to shake out the bad things inside of you. You've got to put me inside of you. Now, throughout this whole passage, there's been a crowd listening. And Matthew is starting to build a case. More and more people, not just the Pharisees. I think last week, Jeremy made the point that we tend to make the Pharisees like these cartoon characters that just show up on the scene to be the image of bad, right? Right? And then everybody else in the story is good. Actually, that's not true. The Pharisees were divided and mostly trying to come after him. And yes, mostly trying to kill him. But the other people that we forget about in the story are the people that are all around. Every day, people were making a choice to decide to follow Jesus or say, you know what, this guy's just too crazy. And Matthew is giving us clues. The more he talks about this generation, the more he talks about these people, that more and more of these people are like, I don't know about this guy. He's asking for some pretty tough things. And Jesus is starting to really put them on the line over and over. Make a choice. You saw what happened to this person. I'm going to use them as an example. It's not enough that the spirit that was in him, the demon, is gone. Because others could come in. And it's the same for all of you. It's not enough for you for just to hear me preach and say, don't do bad stuff, don't do bad stuff. It's more than that. I have to be there. Otherwise, you're just leaving the house empty. And stuff will creep in. And yes, it is dealing with sin. It is dealing with the way that Israel has constantly had this attitude over and over and over of trying to just say, okay, okay, we won't do that again, God. We won't do that again, God. But they never did what he wanted them to do. They never did the right thing. They were always just trying to avoid doing the wrong thing. Well, why does it say, though, that when it's unoccupied, it's already put in order? Shouldn't it say, cleaned out, Jesus comes in, and then it's put in order? What you're focusing on is, then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied. Remember, the spirit gets cast out in his little parable, goes into the desert and goes, I don't like this place. I like where I was living before, and comes back to an unoccupied house. See, the, it finds it unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Jesus is kind of pointing out that that's what we think is enough. That's what we think we have to do. Like, just put everything in order, don't have bad stuff in there, make everything look clean, and it will be okay. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not enough. A, a bad spirit will return to an unoccupied house, even if you've swept it clean and you think you're okay. In fact, it'll bring seven of its friends and never move out. So leaving it unoccupied is the problem, is what he's saying. I've cast it out. You think that's the end of the story? That's just the beginning. Now you've got to fill the house with good stuff... Not with demons, clearly. But with the good things that I'm talking about. you got to make a choice. It's not enough for you to just listen and go, yeah, yeah, It's just have no demons in your life. Or have no sin, just let's have a clean house. An unoccupied house will invite demons back in again. And I, like I said, it's, it's a parable. So I'm not saying that, that you will be demon-possessed by seven demons unless you get Jesus right now into your heart. I don't, that's not what he's saying. But he's using the demon... Casting on the demon as the example here. Okay? All right. Last one to finish off chapter 12 is this. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus seems to have a little bit of an issue with family connections, right? A couple of weeks ago, he was, we were reading about the he who loves a son or a daughter or loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Now, his mom, some brothers and sisters are hanging out outside trying to see him. And he's like, who? These people are my mother, brothers, and sisters. What do you make of that? How does that work for like a big thing like focus on the family? How does that work for them? Are they citing this all the time? What do you think? Is this one of their favorite verses? I mean, this is an obvious question. Is Jesus anti-family? What's going on here?
1: It can kind of skew your loyalty, and it can kind of um, blind you to where your loyalty should be.
0: And he's warning clearly against that?
1: Well, he talks a lot about, um, you know, this will turn brother against brother and father against son. You can't just tell the line of these are my family relationships. I have to be blind to what's actually right.
0: Yeah, he said a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. In context, probably talking, too, about some persecution, about people believing and others not believing, but that part about, you know, if you love your son or daughter or mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me, that still sticks out just like you said. Yeah?
1: I think he's also alluded to the idea of, like, the kingdom and the body of Christ of, like, believers being a family in a sense, like, that's not, like, the family, like, through birth, but, like, through
0: salvation and Yeah, she's sort of alluding that this is a different familial relationship.
1: Okay. Can it be like a statement of equality too? Like maybe whatever they wanted to talk to him about wasn't that important, is saying? Just because they're like my blood, my mother and my brothers, doesn't make them more important than who I'm with. Like it's like inequality that like...
0: How do we feel about that though? I mean, let's just say that's what's going on. Just because they're my blood does not make them anymore my family. This is my family. How do we feel about that? What if we said that? Somebody in here would, could say, is that honoring your mother? By kind of, I mean, isn't that a little bit of a diss? <laughs>
1: yeah. See, and that's where, I think he's using this as a teaching, a situation to teach a lesson. You know, I think it, it overlooks it to say, what, so he never talked to his mom right after that or his brother, I mean, it's, I, I don't think that's the point. I think he's specifically using this as a, what Phil said to, to refer to a
0: different family to say, this is this is what matters is following God, <laughs> is following the will of the Father. That's what he's doing. Okay. Also, like in this culture, like your identity with your family was the most important thing in your life. Like you're identified as your name, son of whoever. So, like to identify these people as part of your family is to like radically change their identities They're not only part of their biological families but they're part of this family because the family is so central and by like speaking to this about the family, that would really shock people into like paying attention because your family relationships are of the utmost importance in this culture and society. This seems like one of those examples where Jesus is, I don't know if he's exaggerating, or maybe he's just trying to make the point through, because to them, yeah, this is actually, you know, to us, you're thinking, yeah, in our society, family's important. But in their society, family was very important. It was of paramount importance. And here he's kind of saying, these are my true brothers, sisters, mother. By the way, let's jump into the mind of mom here for a moment and the brothers and sisters. What are they doing? They're outside, right? Why are they outside? Some people have looked at that and said, I wonder what that means. And it's probably a fair thing to say. How do you think mother, brothers, and sisters looked at Jesus in his ministry? We have to kind of look into it. It's not right there in the text. What do you think?
1: Isn't there like, well, I know there is. I just don't know word for word about like being received in your own home and like how a prophet's received and viewed like in their own home. And it's kind of like less, like it's not, you're not as respected because they're like your family and they've known you since. Like your parents change your diapers or whatever. Like we'd say that today, you know.
0: Scripturally, we know that in Nazareth, he was not accepted. Okay. And he said a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. In fact, in Nazareth, they were trying to kill him. So yes, they're like, it can't be that, that guy. That guy's crazy. I mean, we know that guy. He grew up right here. And his brothers and his sisters are among us. But the implication that people have drawn, it's just something you maybe can speculate about, is that they were probably a little bit standoffish as to his ministry too. That's one of the reasons they're outside. They're kind of just, you know, a number of people looked at that and said, in the first century, if his brothers were really supportive of what he was doing, they would be right there with him. Not kind of standing off in the distance thinking, wonder what that guy's doing. yeah,
1: um, James himself, you know, the brother of Christ, not exactly, I don't know how to say this, but he wasn't exactly in tune with, you know, Christ's ministry because, you know, I think his thinking was, that's my brother, you know, and I don't think he really took it into stride until that point where he wrote the book of James, I think
0: it was. Let's put it this way. In tradition, James comes to the faith later and probably either opposed his brother or did not really agree with him until later. And that's one of the evidences people use that go, look, even James has this radical transformation when the resurrection happens, going from somebody who's not participating in this at all to suddenly being at the head of a church that's <laughs> getting ready to get martyred. Okay, jump in,
1: yeah. Um, but I don't think- I think that would be what Mary was. I mean, like, with the whole
0: Magnificat, with the prophecy and everything, you know. So, um, yeah, you know what? I, I know what you're referring to too, and especially because there's the verse that says that she treasured all these things in her heart, right? I, I, I see that. So our Catholic brothers and sisters are okay right now. They're breathing a sigh of relief, but. <laughs> But there's also a couple of verses in there that, that some people would say, if you read them literally the way they are written, it seems to indicate that she also was a little troubled by some of the things he's doing, but I didn't go down that road, so I can't say I looked at all those verses. Well, the trouble
1: that they had with it could also be just, like, worry, because it's like family, right? And so if they're seeing these... You know, people coming after Christ, plotting his death, or he's stirring up more trouble. I would be there too. Like, if I love my brother, like, shut up! Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, stop rocking the boat so much, or whatever. So,
0: yeah, you know what? This could look bad for the family. You know, I mean, that's part of it. Is like, I think what they're worried about is like, shut up! They're starting to say you're blaspheming. That could, you know, that could be, you know, like we're trying to be good Jewish people, and you're running around the countryside claiming you're a. Messiah or some, you know. And you know, like, if your brother, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, Philip, Nathan, you guys are brothers, like, if Nathan suddenly announced that he was the Messiah, I mean, you're probably like, yo, come on, like, (laughs) anybody but him, you know. Like, I grew up with this guy. He is not the Messiah, all right? <laughs> you know, and it's funny because that is very much there in families. You know, like uh, if you come and sit around our family at Thanksgiving, like you know, they'll ask me a question. Since I open my mouth, they're all like, "What do you know?" Right? Like, so it's just because because they know me, right? That's like I couldn't couldn't know anything, right? Because I'm dumb Johnny that they grew up with. So that's just kind of the way it works. Maybe that's how it was going on here. Let's bring it to a point, point. and I, it would be remiss not to bring up this point. Jesus is saying that all those who follow him are brothers, sisters, and we're family. We could debate all night long about why he said that those people were no more important and he leaves them outside. But the main point is, what about us? We're going to bring an application out of the text. There's nothing more important than this one. Every person in this room, if you profess that Christ is Lord, we're going to be together forever. This adventure that we're on doesn't end. Yeah, you two as roommates, forever, you know. (laughs) It doesn't end. We don't treat it that way. It's almost scandalous sometimes to think about the way that we have our lives. In this example, he's saying that your family is not any closer to you than the people in this room. Now, of course, if your family are believers too, then they're just as close. But he's saying they're no closer. I mean, even in this room, just with the number of people that are here tonight, if we understand the true meaning of his words, this would be a family. And we're not there. And I really would want us to be there. Because we wouldn't really, we would just be using our head knowledge to understand the meaning of this text and not applying it to our lives. There are people in this room that we don't really even know very well. The funny thing is, I do believe from all that I've studied that when we get to heaven, we will have some remembrance of this life, and you will know these people in this room forever. But we have this beautiful gift that's right before us right now that God has given us, that we get to be together now. Not exclusively the people in this room. We don't have to move to a commune and drink Kool-Aid or anything. I mean, it doesn't have to be just us. But we would be so missing the point if we didn't start with us. If we didn't actually reach out and get to know us in this room as a family and think of each other like in the way that we would come around family to meet each other's needs, to pray for one another, to monetarily support one another, to help one another, to like reach out to other people in this room and do something that goes beyond. You know, we always sing like they will know we're Christians by our love. We watch the early church. We see how they exploded when they lived together in a community that was very much a family. I know that week after week, people come in out of this room that need prayer. I know week after week, people coming in out of this room that need love, assistance. Maybe they just need somebody to laugh with. Maybe they just need somebody to know that they're there. Maybe they just need somebody to know that they matter, they count. Maybe they just need somebody to help them with whatever God is calling them to do. And we don't do that. And that, that's hard. Partly it's my fault because sometimes I think we're teaching so much and it's, maybe it's my responsibility to break down the teaching once in a while and say, and how do we live this out? So tonight is one of those moments where I can't just skip over this and say we, we need to live this out. So how do we do that practically? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to drop in Christ for a moment. We are brothers and sisters in the fullest sense of the word. In Jesus' equation, more than your blood relatives. Can we act that way? Can we make an effort together to start to get to know one another at a deeper level? I know what binds us together is Sunday nights and the way we like to study and the way we come together and we laugh and we spend time together and we struggle with Jesus' riddles and we do all those things, right? That's a starting place. But we are all followers of Christ at a very deep level. But we're not living this part out. And I want to encourage you to do that. So if that means... Spending time with somebody in this room that you don't know very well. If that means joining us on a Wednesday night so you can get to know people better. If it means going out afterwards and spending time talking to somebody you don't know. If it means asking people intentional questions like, hey, what's going on in your life? As opposed to, hey, how you doing? You know, What's new with you? What are you doing? What's your goal? What's your ministry about? What's the tough stuff that's happening? Where can I help you? What's going on? Any of those things would help to show that we really are more of a family. Because we are. We're brothers and sisters. Forever. Forever. Let's pray and close tonight and have a little bit of worship. Holy Spirit, in Scripture, there's so many things that are difficult to do without your direct intervention in our lives. Spirit, you live in us. So tonight, Lord, by your Spirit, I ask that you break down the dividing walls that are between us. We live in a country where it's very very easy to remain isolated from people that are just inches away from us. Can we learn to reach out and break down those walls? Can we learn to risk, to be daring enough to ask somebody how they are doing and actually care about the answer? Can we carry each other's burdens? Can we help each other out in celebration? Lord, can we actually do what you ask us to do, to live by that example where your family, where the people who were following your will, And Lord, in this room, the only reason we're here is because we want to know more about you and do your will. So that means every person in this room is following you in a deep sense. We're brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, please make that a reality, not just words on a screen. Touch our hearts. Break our hearts for one another. Pray this in your name. Amen.